I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am your host, Andy Johnson. I hope everybody has had a great holiday season. Uh, it's been nice to unplug a little bit, but uh, wanted to get this pod out for the end of the year for, for that final holiday um, commutes, you know, different travel schedules. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody had a great year and, and thank you to everyone for all the support this year. Uh, it's been an awesome year here at uh, at Friday Golf, and uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without you guys. On today's podcast, I am joined by Steve McDonald. Uh, Steve is the founder, the CEO, I guess, the, the guy that runs Turfgrass Disease Solutions. And you might be asking, what is that? Uh, Steve McDonald is a turfgrass consultant. He works on, in the Northeast, and he consults at just about every prolific great golf course in in the northeast he works everywhere um so this guy uh is kind of uh an expert that the the best superintendents in the world go to for turf grass help um and uh it was awesome to chat with him and kind of get his perspective on a lot of things um he is a great guy golf nut and uh really happy he came on the podcast so before we get to that i wanted to do it's the end of the year um and something we've done, you know, throughout the years, kind of top tens going into majors, top ten players in in the game of golf, and I wanted to do a check in uh, as the top ten players in the world right now, according to me. Um, this is just, you know, this is just my my thoughts on who's who the best players in the world are right now. I think it's nice to do it right now because we've had a little bit of space from professional golf. Um, we haven't had a real tournament in a while. And it, it provides you a little bit more perspective on on the year and kind of what's happened. And, and you're not caught up in, you know, what happened last week. Um, you're looking at more of the whole body of work. So I wanted to do this top 10. Um, I'll start with uh, I'll start with 10 and go to one. Number 10, Ludwig Ober. Um, obviously, this is a newcomer, young gun, rookie uh, this year. Just he was in college this time last year. Um He's been super impressive, and and I want to be um, very upfront here. A super short and small sample size uh, against fairly weak competition. I mean, this guy, he hasn't played in a major championship, Um, but he's got two wins since he turned pro. Uh, He had a good showing at the Ryder Cup, and I think the thing that I'm very big on is the driver talent. This guy might be the best driver of the golf ball in the world. Uh, He could be. And with that, the sky's the limit for Ludwig. So this guy, he's in there at ten. I mean, I kind of threw him in there. You could, you could just, you could put, put him lower. You could put him higher. Um, that's up to you. Number nine. This is a big comeback story. Uh, that obviously people probably aren't talking about because not a lot of people uh, pay attention to live. But um, it, you know, he's playing on a tour that nobody really watches. Bryson had a big, strong comeback year. I think 
if you read into some of the quotes, especially um, after the PGA, he talked a lot about just like getting back to trying to play good golf. Um, I think like the game of golf is better when Bryson DeChambeau is playing well. He is a fascinating character. Um, you can, you know, he he's polarizing, but I think it's, it's he's a fun guy to have playing well. Um, and one of the things that gets him on this list at number nine is his ability to play really big golf courses with narrow fairways and long rough. This is a kind of a standard stock setup for at least one or two majors a year, which is going to make him a big factor. That is the type of golf that him, Brooks Kepka plays that type of golf really well. So I have him at number nine. Number seven and eight, you could put in any order. They happen to be best friends, Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantlay. Uh, as for Cantlay, I have him at eight. He was the best player on the U.S. Ryder Cup team, but eh, we're still another year into his career. He's done very little at majors. Um, he's here. He's such a well-rounded talent, um, but him and Xander, I, I don't think they're cracking the top five until they they get into major contention win a major i think like the thing with both of these guys i'll just cover them both here one question i have is xander is 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 his best years of golf uh behind him um we've seen that i think like jordan speed's a good example of that you know where his best golf is is might be when he was 22 xander's might be when he was 25 26 um i think like one of the things with both these players is they are both two of the best all-around players in the game of golf. Um, but they are not at the quality of of the guys in the top five. Your your Scotty Shufflers, your Rory's, your Rom, Brooks. Those guys are just a little bit echelon higher in all-around talent. Um, you know, these are these two guys are are above average players in basically every statistical category. And that's really rare in golf. And and, you know, we've seen you know, Justin Thomas's greatest year as a player happened when he had above average putting, right? It's not a coincidence. Then he had this supreme talent in every category. Xander and Cantley are those guys. They just, I don't think they possess like the truly great talent in anything, like a sublime talent. And that's the key characteristic of everybody above them on the list is you can look at them and be like, you know, they might be the best in the world at something. So up next is uh, Colin Morikawa. He's number six. It's been a down couple of years, but I think the thing with Morikawa is that iron play, you know, driver has been catching up in terms of importance, but iron play is still the best weapon in all of golf. And I don't know if there's a better iron player in the world than Colin Morikawa. Um, he obviously has two majors. Um, I think that we're going to see a kind of, a bounce back year from the last couple of years from Morikawa. He hasn't been terrible, but he just hasn't been that level of play that we saw a couple of years ago. Um, number five, Victor Hovland. He's been, I think like a lot of people would put him higher here. Um, he's been the most impressive golfer over the last six months. Um, between his play in the majors, the FedEx cup run, um, which saw him win the FedEx cup and then the Ryder cup, which he was sensational in. I mean, this, this guy's, arguably the most improved i think like you know you have it's it's hard to improve as much as victor hovland did like the better you are at golf the harder it is to make big improvements and victor hovland has has targeted his weakness in sh in short game he's gotten so much better he he saw that he wasn't 
as long as some other guys. He has gotten longer as a player. And like I think the thing about Hovland has has always been the super like above average is his accuracy. He's always been such an accurate driver of the golf ball, great iron player. Um, and that short game getting so much better. It seems like he's had a lot of fun improving the short game. And um, I just think he, we could be talking next year. He might be two or one on this list. Um, he's number five right now, but he might not have been top 10 last year. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start doing this, just to keep keep track over the years. All right, number four, we got Brooks Kepka. He won the PGA, almost won the Masters. He's got the most majors of anyone on this list. Um, you know, he's not there week to week. Like he's never going to be somebody that wows you with his week to week consistency. But when it comes to major championships, I, you know, I think this is probably where, where he falls. He probably falls four. He might fall three, might two, you know, you could, these four, I think are interchangeable when it comes to picking majors. They, they work everywhere. You know, I don't think it's unrealistic to think that Brooks could get to seven or eight majors by the time he's done. Um, you know, especially is, is the big question is always going to be health. Um, all right. Number three, another, n- the newest live player, John Rahm, number three. And I think that's going to be the big question with 2024 with R- John Rahm. How is he going to play in majors now that he's a member of live? We've seen it go kind of both ways. Like Brooks has been relatively unaffected. Right. Um, but we've also see a guy that is a notable absent, uh, absent, T on this list is Cam Smith. Like I, I couldn't, I would have been hard pressed to think he would have been off this list this time last year, but he looks like a completely different player since his big payday. You know, to me, it, it you know, you see some of the, the pictures of him at the, at the Australian open. It just doesn't seem like golf is, is the number one priority in his life right now. Um, but I don't think I'm going to be worried about Rom's performance dipping. So I got Rom three. I think you could, you know, you could have them one, you could have them two. I don't think there's a wrong answer really with these top four, um, but I just have them three. I think the reason I have them three real quick before we get to the next two is that with Rom, we have a little bit more um, variability in major performance. And obviously he's, he, he won the Masters. That was a great win. But like we still have these majors where he's a little bit of a no-show, like, you know, LACC this year, um, PGA. He just wasn't really a factor in either of those. I know the LACC finish looks better than it was. Um, and then obviously, you know, he had he had a rough start at um, at uh, Liverpool, but then he came roaring back. Um, number two is Rory McIlroy. We're waiting for the major. Everybody's waiting for the major. I'm sure uh, Rory's waiting for it more so than anybody. But the thing that has him two here is even though it wasn't a great year by Rory standards, he's got seven top tens in the past eight majors. Um, that level of consistency that Rory's had in the majors is is unmatched by anybody else in this list. And it just seems in- inevitable for it to break his way soon. You know, he's still got that supreme distance and talent um, off the tee that is going to carry him. I don't think that's going to change. I think, you know, there might be more guys that are close to him than ever before, but it's still such a huge advantage over almost everybody. I remember watching, you know, at LACC and, and the guy that I have ahead of him was Scotty Scheffler, one of the great drivers of the golf ball. Rory's just, like, I mean, he's like 25 yards past him. It, it's insane. He has gotten longer. That's one of the, under talked about things is how much Rory McIlroy's um, improved off the tee in the last two years. He has got to be 20 yards longer 
than he was two to three years ago. His driver talent is just unbelievable. Um, number one, Scotty Scheffler. I think like, you know, we're going to look back on, on 2023. It obviously was, I think, probably a frustrating year for Scotty Scheffler. He had statistically one of the greatest ball striking years ever. Um, T to green was just at a level that only had been reached by Tiger Woods in the, in the modern uh, stats era. The putter was really bad. If the putter comes back to something average and he hits the ball somewhat on a similar trajectory, he's going to win five, six, seven times in 2024. I'm going to bet on that. You know, like I think putting's really variable. It can go up and down. I'm going to bet on him figuring it out. I think that we are in store for a big Sky Scheffler year. So he's my number one. So that's my top 10 players in the world right now. I think like obviously a person that I've, I've, I think like a lot of there's some exclusions here, you know, Spieth, JT and Max Homa. And they're all at different, different stages. I think of those three that Justin Thomas has the best chance of coming back in. I really hope that JT makes it back in. He is one of the most fun players to watch in, in the game. It would be great to see kind of a, a comeback in, in the, the way that kind of, I don't think it's, and all to the depths that Jordan Spieth or Ricky got to. Um, but I think I think JT of those three has the best to be into this top 10 next year this time. Um, he's already been there. Everything's there. He just He's just got to get hitting the ball better. He's just got to get back to his old self um, off the tee and, and with the approach play. So that was the top 10 players, uh, I think, going into 2024. Uh, let me know what you think, if you disagree, what, how you feel. And before we get to Steve McDonald, let's take a quick break to talk about our uh, sponsor, Toro. Up and down, ham and egg. To the list of great golf pairings, we can now add the Toro Workman MDX and electrification. For more than two decades, the Workman MDX has been the superintendent's trusty sidekick, a rugged utility vehicle for whatever the job. And now it's the same, except the Workman MDX Lithium is powered by Toro's proprietary hypercell lithium-ion batteries, meaning the chargers on board ready to be connected to any standard 120-volt power outlet whenever, wherever. Less time checking batteries and more time getting stuff done. With the same power and durability, that's another great golf pairing. A win-win. Visit Toro.com golf and reach out to your local Toro distributor for more information. Now let's get to Steve McDonald. All right, Steve, I was with a superintendent uh, probably about a month and a half ago. Uh, He's a retired superintendent, and he was... He was telling me about how I needed to get you on the on the podcast, and you know, I had I had long thought about having you on, and just probably hadn't asked. You know, that was the that was the thing. But his uh, impetus is is uh, his declaration of why you needed to be on the podcast was he told me that he extend you extended his career by ten years. He said he was struggling. Wow. You came in and and added ten years to his career. So. How would you describe what you do as a profession? So I'm an agronomist that you know, visits, you know, between 150 and 250 golf courses per year. So I get to see uh, the full gamut of, 
you know, impact of cultural practices, fertility, on playability. But the biggest challenge I think, you know, many superintendents uh, face as they kind of get in the last stage of their career is they get kind of get, you know, complacent or what they've done for the past 20 years has worked really, really well. And why should they be open to switching up, you know, various practices, programs, and products? So uh, I look at it from a holistic approach as an avid golfer myself and an agronomist. I tend to look at, you know, overall programs and from a holistic standpoint. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty nice compliment to be made for sure there. Yeah. So, so you're a turf grass consultant. What, what does that entail? Right. So I consult for every major aspect of turf grass management. So for example, last Friday, I was at a club that uh, we, we went through the gamut through the greens committee and the superintendent we talked about airification timing, airification methods, then pest control for greens, tees, fairways, drainage that needs to be installed in fairways and putting greens, tree work. So it's, it's really all comprehensive for uh, turf grass management. Uh, my background is actually in turf grass pathology. I have, I have a master's degree in, in figuring out why grass is, is dying. Um, Interesting. Beyond that, you know, the, the basically past 20 years I've been self-employed, I've realized that golf course superintendents are going to ask you every question under the book from, you know, average green speed to wet and agent applications to, you know, how does the size of our driving range compare to other clubs in the same ball game, right? So I get... Uh, many different questions over the course of a year and uh, really kind of prepares you to be more of a generalist as far as golf course care goes. So, um, but yeah. How, how did you get into this field? Uh, you Obviously, you, you studied how, why grass dies. Was it always with the vision of get, doing this? So it, it's a long story short. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. But um, my grandfather was a World War II veteran and uh, actually had a grenade took in his leg on, on D-Day. And uh, he still played golf till the day he died. And as a young kid, he took me to a local municipal golf course to play. i never forget the carts still had the wood, wood panels on the side of them type uh-huh. of place. And um, I fell in love with golf at the age of like eight or nine and uh, really just kind of realized that golf's what I wanted to do and I never was going to be good enough to be a pro. So I basically started changing cups at a local local uh, public golf course and realized you could make a living, you know, taking care of a golf course. So I decided to go to a small ag school outside of Philadelphia called DelVal College. And then uh, I went to University of Maryland for graduate school. I never was sold on being a superintendent. You know, I, I realized when I was at Philly Country Club as, a, as an intern, as an assistant, that you know, to me, I, I wanted to see a lot of, of things and, you know, driving up the hill and seeing the third and 13th green every day for this, you know, for a long period of time was not what I wanted. Um, so I got a master's degree and I was really unsure what I was going to do. I was going to go back into academia, get a PhD in turf grass management and teach. Uh, but I had a, a lot of people pushing me to start my own consulting business. And uh, it's been almost 20 years. So basically, in 2005, I started the business. And um, when I got done graduate school, and I still dabbled, you know, working on some golf courses early on in my my independent career. But uh, really, it's been a lot of fun the, the past 15 years. You know, uh, I get to see warm season grasses, you know, and then cool season grasses and problem solve. And the biggest part of my job is to assess risk for a golf course, right? Really, you know, what, why are the greens struggling or why are these fairways struggling? And what can be done within that budget to potentially reduce that risk of turf loss or uh, winter damage, which happens every few years in the Northeast, for example. Uh, but really, just, it really comes down to looking at those challenges and then trying to get a solution for them. Uh, what would you say is the biggest reason that grass dies on a golf well, course? Uh, too wet is probably the biggest one. It probably goes too wet from rainfall, poor drainage, then shade, then 
excessive traffic or play combined with, you know, excessive demands for quick. Um, and these have changed, Andy. I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, you look at some of these 100-year-old greens that are out there that have 40 years of straight sand top dressing through airification. And you look at those greens and they're, they're good. And people will say, how do you make that green better? And then you say, well, drain it or bring an architect in and look at, you know, the undulations in the green, but still draining the green. But the reason why the drainage has been so beneficial for a lot of these older golf courses is just water conducts heat, heats up and it can kill grass. So I would say too much water is probably one, the biggest thing. Our fungicides that we use currently for disease control, for fungal growth control are phenomenal. We have, we have some really good tools for golf course superintendents out there. So I, I, I I wouldn't say it's always disease related. It's more so environmental related and then the diseases come in secondary. And, um, you know, a lot of these problems you, you can't, you know, spray for, right? It's not like you can go to the local pharmacy and pick up a, a, a prescription for a, a physical ailment, right? It's a, a challenge, right? So same thing in, on the golf course landscape. Um, with you visiting, you know, hundreds of courses and you, as you laid out earlier, you kind of meet with all the stakeholders in at these clubs, whether it's the greens committee, the, I imagine the board, the head pro, the, the superintendents, obviously your, your main point of contact. How do you curtail your messaging to the different stakeholders? Do you, do you have strategies and do you notice, uh, different aspects of, of, golf course maintenance uh, really appeals to different stakeholders. Is it, 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 can you share any kind of broad, you know, I, I don't want to make it stereotypes, but like broad conclusions that you've come across the different stakeholders at a golf course? And that's a really good question. You know, what I try to do with my consultant is when I, when I meet an individual, I try to really kind of understand what they're interested in, right? A yeah. golf pro may be interested in getting access for more people or, uh, where a green crew member could be interested on, uh, I had one a few weeks ago where the guy was insistent that everybody takes three divot mix bottles with them. And they fill in every divot on the golf course, right? So he was really interested in divot recovery. So I'll discuss, you know, certain things that he, he or she may be interested in. Whereas a GM is really interested in the bottom line sometimes, right? What's this going to cost, right? What's it cost to put drainage into a green? So uh, I really kind of curtail my my communications with those individuals uh, very directly and, and and to their interest. Uh, superintendent, we, we all know what they're interested in, right? Yeah. Uh, producing the best golf course possible, right? Hands down. So uh, with them, uh, maybe have more technical talks with, you know, Greenskin members, even golf professionals. I think it's important to ask them what their concerns are. You know, their concerns could be, well, if you airify this day, will the Greens be ready for this event this day, right? And so, yeah. And many times, a lot of these agronomic questions, I tell people, I say, listen, if I could really answer that question, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd be, be on the beach in the Bahamas, right? So <laughs> a lot of this stuff is so unpredictable, right? We can't control the weather. Um, you know, if, if there was an app out there that you could open up your phone and say, hey, if we airify the Greens this day, they'll be completely healed by this day. There, there, there would be no art in this. A lot of what we do on the golf course is art for sure. So. I feel I get questions like that from random friends. Like if if a course is airifying this day, do you think it'll be in good shape by this day? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Is uh, my general rule of thumb is like three weeks? Is that would you say that's a good general rule of thumb or is it more of a month? Well, it's it's all dependent on time of the year, right? Yeah, so like exactly for, for, the, for the Northeast, right? A lot of golf courses historically run out there the first warm day in March, you know, when the greens aren't frozen and they punch a hole and there's no leaves in the trees, there's no growth. And it could be four to six weeks, right? Or if they wait till May, which May is a really good 
kind of play golf, it could be two weeks. So it all depends on soil temperature, day length, right? Like we're entering our shortest days of the year here in late December, right? And even if you're in the Caribbean, it still gets dark at five o'clock in the afternoon. It's not like it stays light, even though it's 80 degrees, right? So there's a lot of factors on why airification recovery can be a, a really, one, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge at every golf course, right? Because we know the benefits of airification, but there's no good time to airify, is bottom line. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because I, I feel like if you do it at the end of the year, then it just shuts everybody down for like those like little like right. great days that you get. But like at the end of the at the end of the line, like at the bottom line is like it's not that bad to play on airfight greens. Like people, I I think I want to get into this a little bit later, but like it it's a complete like expectation thing with golf and right. and where it's gone. And some of the expectations yeah. are completely out of whack. Um, Agreed. If you were gonna describe just from a turf side. Right. You, you're, we've talked a little bit about these different stakeholders in golf. If you were going to if you were going to say like the high performing clubs that you consult, are there any common characteristics with their leadership and the way they make decisions? Yes. One of the biggest challenges for stakeholders at any club is, is they have a personal commitment that they really want the golf course to be the best it's going to be. Right. So they get highly involved. Right. And. Sometimes that's good or sometimes that's bad, but many times you, you have turf professionals or even golf pros that are very well skilled at their at their discipline. So, you know, there's certain instances where people need to be hands on, and there's other instances where people should be hands off. And a question I've, I've asked some people more recently is, you know, they'll bring up a tough task, and I'll say to them, "Are you here to help the club or hurt hurt the club?" Right? And and they'll they'll get offended and taken back by that question. They'll say, "Why do you ask that?" I say, "Well." You know, I think the plan that your superintendent or even a golf professional have in place is a really good one. And with, without the input, then, uh, but really strong leadership, you know, leadership that's really ready to stand up to the, the 99% of people who enjoy the club, right? And, and be with them and, and then also enjoy the club, right? Or the golf course, whatever it is. I feel like many times, you know, a lot of these, these, these concerns get brought up and people are rightfully concerned, right? They, they love their golf course or they care about it. Um, but they're also looking for concerns, right? So looking for issues when, uh, if you, you or I go out there, we're just, you know, grab our sticks in the first hole and go and chat and nice shot, great shot. Like we're not going to nitpick the fact that the bunker on the back right of two green has, you know, a footprint in it. Right. So, uh, there's a lot, a lot, lot of good leadership out there. Uh, the biggest advice I have is, you know, um, what's the number of people involved is a big one. You know, many times there's too many voices in the room that you're not going to be able to, um, focus on the really the big task at hand uh but as well as letting the the, the turf professional or the golf professional do do what's what's in the best interest for the club i you you hit on concerns and like things that people should be concerned about uh, what's the example of like a um innocuous concern like one that just you know not really important versus something that you should be concerned about like you know, like like if you could describe one as like a frivolous concern, like something you shouldn't be bringing up to your turf professional or someone on the staff versus a concern you should be bringing up if you're just a I, golfer. I got two. I got two good ones for you, Andy. Edge is a cart path where the cart path meets the grass. It's number one in my books. <laughs> number two is number two is the appearance of bunkers, right? The appearance of bunkers, right? The appearance does not impact how they play. And when you begin to talk to people about, you know, you're spending more per square foot to maintain bunkers, which are a penalty area, than you are on putting greens, 
it becomes a very eye-opening topic to talk about. Um, but the cart path ends are an easy talking point for me, a uh, very difficult talking point for people to understand. When you say, hey, what percentage of your rounds walk? And a golf course will say, uh, maybe 25%. So, so how many rounds did you do last year? They say uh, 28,000. So I say, okay, 24,000 carts traveled the exact same spot off that cart path edge, right? Plus your maintenance equipment. I'm not sure if you have a beverage cart or not, but you have to realize the volume of, that's like 75 carts a day when you're open for play. And when you say that to people, they get very eye open. Like there's like if you had 75 carts running through your front yard every day, how would it look, right? Um, so it's a, a, a good topic many times. And that, I've been saying this more and more as I say, how many golf balls get hit from that spot? Because within the rules of golf, I think you get relief, right? The rules take care of that issue already. Uh, or I'll say, I think you have other items you got to focus on besides that. Those are my two kind of my, you know, ones I get a lot of questions about. You know, the, the, the appearance of bunkers, as you know, right? A, a bunker can be black and off color and play really well, but a, a, a golfer will walk by it and see, you know, the appearance of it. And it's like, are you playing out of that? So it's 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 a fun it's a fun conversation when that does come up. I think more so than maybe any feature in a golf course, the 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 thought of a bunker, like and what it represents from when golf architecture and golf was starting to what it is today. You know, like if you take CB McDonald's quote about you know, I want I'd rather have like a thousand elephants run through a bunker than like it. You know. Like the idea of like it being complete hazard, like don't hit it in there to today where like every club, like I, I think like the, you know, and I'm sure I don't want to offend any, any club that you consult at. This is my opinion, but like the shipping in this, this sand from like way far away to make sure it's perfect and like uber playable, like that disconnect is just, it's, it's never been greater. Like I, I don't know. I, I found I was playing at a golf course this this fall and like they had a different sand. It was like heavier and it was, you know, it was a native sand. And, and it, I found it like was more challenging. It was just a different challenge. But like after a couple days, I figured out, oh, I got to use like a different wedge that has more bounce. And then all of a sudden I started to play well out of the sand. It's like, that's a skill like this is we're just de-skilling the game. If everybody's got the same sand, it is. Bunker maintenance is insane. And then it, it even goes down to like the idea. And I don't know where you stand on this, but like, I think it's crazy that we're putting some, some of these liners that we're putting in have like a lifespan. It's like, wait, you're putting, it'd be like, you know, putting in, it's like when you put machinery into your kitchen that has a, a 10 year lifespan, it just means you're going to have to spend that money or more than that money uh, in 10 years. It's like if you don't absolutely 100% need it, what are we doing with with machinery? Right. That's why it's so critical for any any big restoration or renovation or even small project to make sure that infrastructure is exactly as the architect intends. And I, I see this quite a bit uh, where people are, are even taking the time to say re, they're going to relevel a T-box. I look at it and say, well, that T-box actually should be looked at by an architect, right? I'm not an architect. I'm, I'm an agronomist. So. Uh, make sure it's in the right spot. And it, like, well, why? It's, it's been here for 30 years. I'm like, well, you're going to take the time to put new irrigation on, re-level a tee. And you want to make sure it's in the right spot because you could be redoing that tee in, in 10 or 12 years. Um, but yeah, the, the bunker stands is a really interesting one. The other one that really kind of frustrates me, Andy, is 
is we have a lot of architecture going back to the way it was 100 years ago. And when you look at old golf course photos, do you see really healthy grass and bunker surrounds? No, it's kind of like a mixed bag, right? And so the expectations now are that we'll, you know, restore, you know, whoever the architect was and these big old slopes, they face the sun. I mean, is fine turf really designed or engineered to be growing at a, you know, a significant slope facing the sun, right? No, most turfs do best on flat surfaces. So there's a big, you know, stressful point that, you know, that we're going back to those. So there's a lot of things about terrain bunkers that can be a big challenge. I think about like some of my favorite courses from the sense of conditioning and they embrace like I you know maybe the best highly trafficked golf course from a conditioning standpoint is Pinehurst number two in the sense of its edges right like what I love about Pinehurst number two is the way they they approach the edges of the native and the fairway right it is a living moving target right and it, as you get to the edge of the fairway, which is like where you, when you hit a tee shot, you know, you're, you, you kind of like gasp, especially at Pinehurst number two, when your ball gets near an edge. And when you get yep. near that edge, that surface gets a little bit more irregular. It's a little bit more baked out and the ball tends to run into the native. Right. And like this idea that that native, you know, I think like if you go to a club, and I don't want to stereotype all the clubs, but like you go to a club and it's the idea is like, this is our fairway line and it can't deviate from this, right? It can't, you know, move out two feet. It can't move in two feet, but that golf course, which is hosting a million us opens. Um, I love the nature of like, this is a living organism and some blow out, some come in. But like that idea of allowing the golf course to live just resonates so much with me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Though. It, it takes a strong, you know, commitment to do that. Right. So that's that's the challenge. You know, Friars said, which I've worked with Bill Jones for a number of years, the exact same way where the, the dunes on certain holes are just moving and they're not going to move those, right? So it's similar in that regard. That creates a, a very unique feature relative to a, a cut and dry fairway rough edge like you mentioned. Now, the other thing too is it's unpredictable, right? You might hit a, like you say, you might hit a ball down there. The first question you ask is your, your caddy or your person you're playing with, you think that's okay, right? Yeah. And you get down there, it ends up being a little bit of a hard pan, sandy, you know, kind of wire grass type lie many times. So uh, but yeah, I, I agree. But that's also, you know, a big commitment for, for any club, right. They have to be, you know, committed to that. Right. And I see both ends of the spectrum. I see, you know, does that fit our landscape or not fit the landscape? Um, but yeah, from a maintenance standpoint and the old appearance def definitely makes some sense. Yeah. I just think like, as you move off the center line of the fairway, not, it's not like the native and in, in the wire grass there, but I think as you move off the center line of a fairway, the situation you are presented should just become more and more unpredictable in general. Right. Yeah. Right. And like, that should be an overall philosophy. I think like a lot of what turf represents is, is the overall philosophical change in golf, right. From where it was like a, you know, especially in the early 1900s, it was just a, you know, overcome any obstacle because it was so, out in the wild, the form of, you know, the expertise of agronomists, you know, in the, in the greenskeepers and the superintendents 
was so much less than today. Like it's almost as the science and the expertise of the professionals have advanced, the mentality of the of the golfers has shifted to this real like fair or not fair. Everything has to be perfect. Like it's interesting, like, you know, the overall spirit of golf has been lost as turf professionals have gotten so good at their job. Right. And that's why I use that example as a car path edge, Andy. Cause yeah. I mean, I, I've had that interaction many times with people where they're like, let's go look at number 16. So what's going on 16? Oh, the car path edge is thin. And I'm like, <laughs> we're looking for perfection. I get that. I understand your concerns, right? I totally understand it. But at the same time, like, yeah, it's a tough scenario. But superintendents themselves are not doing them, them, themselves any good many times because their expectation is perfection as well. Uh, as I, as you mentioned, right, I mean, I, I know where, where I'm going each day. The expectations are going to be, be very high, right, so many times. So uh, it's important to really get all that in front of you. And, and then, you know, ask, but what are the big concerns, right? And, and then if the concerns are, you know, like you said, perfection or graduated rough or outside's a little, little rougher than the inside. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it takes commitment either way to do that. All right, let's take a quick break to talk about Toro and the Toro Vista. Moving people around comfortably and efficiently is an important job for any golf property. And for other sprawling places like campuses, event spaces, and municipalities, the new Toro Vista is perfect for all of them. Available in gas or lithium-ion battery, four, six, and eight passenger models, this powerful people mover works as hard as a truck but rides like a limousine. Sure to impress guests no matter the venue. Its polar white body makes customization a breeze too, so the Vista can pull double duty as a rolling billboard while getting folks from point A to B on point. Visit Toro.com slash golf and reach out to your local Toro distributor for more information. All right, let's get back to Steve McDonald. All right, so we we hit on a couple like things you shouldn't talk about, you know? Yeah. What are a couple things that should be brought up if you see them? Yeah, so the big items, you mentioned some of this, is that, you know, almost everything in a golf course landscape has life expectancy. Right. To think about you're going to put miles of pipe in the ground and run water through it. And then every November in the Northeast or the central, you know, even other parts of the country, you know, put pressurized air in and blow it out. Right. The irrigation system in particular. Right. Uh, the irrigation system is the lifeline of any golf course. And um, a lot of people will ask me from time to time, they'll say, Steve, how do we improve our rough at the golf course? And I say, well, your greens, tees and fairways must be really good if you're asking me how to improve your rough. Right. And I kind of it's a kind of a joke. My next question is, how's your irrigation coverage in the rough? And many people will say, we don't have irrigation in the rough. I say, well, rough's probably as good as it's going to be without irrigation in there, right? So irrigation is really a critical thing. We, ha- we have some really good technology with some newer you know, HDP piping, uh, some newer heads that are more efficient, some spacing methods. So irrigation is number one, Andy, uh, on most golf course infrastructure. Then drainage, uh, you, you talked a lot about over the years, tree management, and I, I follow that in detail. It's awesome. Uh, people have to understand that trees on golf courses grow. So 30 or 40 years ago, the trees were probably half the height they are now. Trees on golf course landscapes grow quicker than trees in forests because they are, you know, they're open to at least one half. So they have more sunlight and more competition. Uh, and then also trees are are at the life expectancy, yeah, life expectancy as well. They 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 can get hit by lightning, they can be blown over by a big windstorm event, right? So um 
you know, there's, there's challenges with trees. The big, big, big three things I talk about many times are what I call course infrastructure. And it's challenging for many golf courses because they get so caught up in their annual operating budget that they don't look at the big ticket items like the irrigation, drainage, airflow, and equipment, right? So there's a big capital expenditures that uh, people ask me all the time, what's, how's our budget compared to this budget? And I say, we can talk about this, folks, but we also have to look at about the big picture. They're like, what do you mean big picture? I'm like, well, here's a good example. Anybody could probably afford to buy an NFL team. You could pay the price, right? Take a load out and buy the NFL team. But can you afford the pay to players, right? And so there's two ways to look at that, right? As far as like, okay, buying the golf course or, or, or annual budget, but then paying the players, right? So keeping everybody happy, keeping the equipment up to date, uh, keeping the, the, the infrastructure to where it needs to be, right? So really, those are the big things that most golf courses should be looking at. It's, it's like a, having a, it's like buying ahead. buying a house, but not being able to afford the furn- to put per- furniture in it, right? Exactly. Exactly. So when I bought my first house, I said to my insurance sales rep, I said to him, I said, why am I insured for this? So this much, he says, Steve, if you lost everything in your house, think about it. even the towels in your bathroom you have to replace. Like you have to buy all this stuff, right? And so it's a good comparison. Like a golf course is like any big entity and it takes some big ticket items. You know, you're going to put a new roof on your house every 20 or 30 years, right? A golf course should know that we're probably going to put in irrigation every 20 or 30 years at the longest, right? So um, that, that's probably one of the biggest challenge facing many, many of the golf courses. Uh, and realize many of the, the bigger clubs that have been, you know, are well-conditioned and have the infrastructure in place, they've planned for this five and 10 and 15 years out. And so it's very difficult for, for many clubs that haven't been having the foresight to look at those items to, to plan accordingly. All right. So what would you describe as ideal conditions? So, Andy, I, I'm, I'm probably uh, different than most. I go to a golf course for two reasons. One, to work, and then entirely just to go enjoy myself, yeah. right? And so people ask me, they'll say, Steve, how do you separate work and play? I say, I don't even think about grass when I'm thinking about hitting an eight iron, 162 yards into a right to left win. I, I don't even think about the grass, right? Um, so um, my ideal conditions would be, you know, obviously, you know, fairways, 400, tees, 400, greens rolling about 10 and a half, 11 and a half feet. Uh, I'm not a great putter. So I tend to like greens that roll out pretty well, but not, you know, have a 10 foot, you know, comeback putt if I miss a par, right? So um, and I also really enjoy looking at architecture, right? And, and slower greens typically allow you to use more cupping locations. They break more. You can have more uh, creative creativity in slower greens and faster greens. Uh, people ask me, they'll say, Steve, why do people like greens fast? And I say, I think faster greens can be easier to putt for a number of reasons, right? Once you get the golf ball online, it's not going to stop short of the hole. And then two, have you ever seen a short putt go in, Right. Um, you have to get the, the golf ball to the hole for it to go in. And the quicker the greens are, the, the more that, that tends to happen. So, I, I mean, that's an interesting, um, I, you just made something click in my brain is like, I, I think that golfers in general, they probably hate one thing on a green more than anything. And, and there's probably like some level of like shaming over decades that has gone into short, leaving putts short. Yeah. Yeah. And the faster the greens are, yeah. the less likely you are to leave the leave a putt short, which might totally might explain the whole fascination with like super fast greens. It could it could be a big part of it. Yeah, I had a caddy years ago, a really good caddy, uh, and he said to me, he "says You ever see a short putt go in?" And I said, "Tom, that's really interesting." The guy was in his sixties, caddy forever. 
And um, I, I've taken that with me for a long time. And, and the other thing that, you know, a lot of the greens I play into are still from front to back. Yeah. So, you know, our first 25 to 35 foot putts typically uphill, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, typically, um, yeah, I mean, as far as conditioning goes, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at it. I, I'm not usually at the golf course to, the, the play a golf course just to have fun, right? Uh, meet up with some buddies, um, you know, kind of just hang out. So I, I'm not looking at that from, from agronomics all the time. Do you think maintenance expectations uh, have gone too far at the high-end clubs? Do I think maintenance expectations have gone too far? No, because people are willing to pay for them and people are willing to get the time. The big big separation, and I struggle with this as a consultant because I have a golf club that will say to me, they'll say, Steve, uh, why are we airifying? And I, I think about, well, XYZ, which is ranked top 10 in the world, which is an hour away, they also airified. And I'll have a golfer turn to me and say, well, I didn't join that club, Steve. I joined this club, right? So um, the cultures amongst various courses and clubs oftentimes dictate what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, right? So, for example, we know that many of the top 10 golf courses in the world, they, they close their greens for a minimal of 30 days per year, right? So they tarp them, they cover them in the Northeast, and, and they're closed for you know January, February, March most years. Well, if you're talking to a golfer who looking to play golf at least twice a, a week in the wintertime, and you mentioned like, hey, XYZ top club in the area. Uh, but that's what I'm saying about they give the time and the resources to his clubs to be that. I right? mean, so like a great example of this is in in my neck of the woods, San Francisco area. Uh, the course that's just like, I mean, I think nationally known for their conditioning, Cal Club. We live, I live in a 12 month a year golf place. Yep. And Cal Club takes two weeks where they shut everything down, you know, where they do like heavy, heavy maintenance for two weeks in a time when everybody can play golf. Right. And yep. I'm sure it's frustrating, but they know they need to they need some time off to deliver the day to day expectations. You know, Yep, that's a great example. Andy. Yeah. So that's what I was getting at as far as the time and the resources. Right. So um so it's a challenge, right? Because, you know, maintenance budgets have gotten to a point where they, they are getting very high. I think it's important to also keep in back of people's minds that between 60 and 70% of most annual operating budgets on golf courses is labor. So you think about there's only 30 to 40% of, of other expenses that be equipment, fuel, right? Water. This is, this is a generalization, right? But um, so labor has gone up quite a bit for every industry, right? So as these budgets have gone up, uh, and a golf course is not an easy uh, thing to take care of, right? So you have a lot of, of handwork, manual labor. You have a lot of just tedious tasks on golf courses that take a lot of time. And I th think in the future with, with some of the autonomous mowers and some of the technology coming down the pipelines, maybe we'll see this this kind of plateau, right, where um, some of that stuff maybe won't get terribly more expensive once that infrastructure is in place. Now, there'll be some nuances with some of the other equipment issues, but I would hope that, you know, the technology is coming to the, the, the turf market to make it uh, a little more um, kind of plateaued, so to speak. But I, I don't think it's excessive, Andy. You know, now we, you, you guys follow professional golf. I mean, some of these purses that the pros are playing for, they want to play these top level golf courses. I mean, I think it's well warranted to give them that, that type of conditioning. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned uh, labor as a, you know, kind of a challenge that the turf grass industry faces. What are some of the other big challenges uh, that you see in the industry? So beyond labor, uh, our biggest challenges would be public perception of pesticide use on golf courses. Um, 
we're, we're seeing that really come to the forefront here in New Jersey, where there was recently a, a, an insecticide ban of a, a class of insecticides that was used uh, pretty pretty successfully on golf courses. Um, so p- public perception, I mean, if you type into chat GPT, I did this last week for one of the classes I was teaching, you say public perception of pesticide use on golf courses and ha- list eight things, right? Um, and it's pretty interesting to think about, you know, um, our standards in the U.S., which differ incredibly from the U.K. in our you know, visual assessment of putting greens and fairways and tees is, is very different. Um, so if you take you know, golfers to the U.K. and you show them greens that have no, no fungicides on them, uh, fairways that have no herbicides on them, um, they'll say, oh, it's the U.K., right? Well, if, if we continue to have you know, major pesticide restrictions in the U.S., we're going to have to change our level of expectation because you're, you're going to see some diseases on putting greens. You're going to see some weeds and fairways. Uh, the perfection level that we currently have. So a uh, second to labor would definitely be you know, the, the public perception of pesticides. And we, we need to stay ahead of this uh, as an industry. You know, every applicator is certified. We go through continuing education. Uh, many golf courses are covering their drains up. They're using pesticides according to the label, which is approved by the EPA. So uh, it's more of a perception than it is a reality. You know, the, the class of insecticides just got banned in New Jersey. We have, I, I personally have not seen any bee concerns on golf courses with that class. Now, there, there is some environmentally, but you know, golf courses are, are, are an area where bees generally are not feeding, right? They're not exposed to the insecticide. And many golf courses within the state of New Jersey have beehives on the golf course, and we're using that class of insecticides with no issues. So it really, really comes down to, you know, as an industry, staying ahead of these concerns, educating people about um, what we're doing. Um, that same class of insecticide is actually used for dogs and cats, right? They put on there for fleas and ticks, right? So it's around people very carefully uh, in their households sometimes. So uh, public perception of, of that would be probably my number, my number two. And then that goes hand in hand with water, right? And what the water concerns, you know, long-term, as you know, out West are going to be re- more regional, but eventually there'll be, you know, countrywide uh, concerns over water use. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've started to notice. And yeah, I think I'm just a little bit more conscious of it uh, being out here. But, you know, you start to go to Texas and you're starting to see water concerns. Uh, you know, there's golf courses that can't be built in Colorado because they haven't got a secured water rights. And and it's just right. it, you know, it's just a matter of time before it works its way across the country. And I think like. I think you could be a little bit naive uh, to towards it until you see it firsthand, right? Where yeah. you you are either at a club that's purchasing water and you see the bill, or at a club that uh, you know doesn't have enough water to to yes. keep the grass conditions uh, to a certain level. Um, I, I I'm sure that you've you know superintendents are are such an interesting group of people, and I think they are extraordinarily resourceful. I'm curious if you have some examples of like the best innovations or makeshift solutions that you've come across at different golf courses where you're kind of like, wow, I can't believe that they figured out how to do this. So that's a, it's a good question. Um, probably some of the most innovative things I've seen are with labor, right? Where somebody's either a really good motivator and they can get a lot done with few people or a way where, say, a, a person goes out to mow greens, change cups, and rake bunkers all at the same time. And that, it's really increased the effectiveness of, of the labor they have in, in, in house, right? 
Whereas some golf courses will send one crew out the, you know, rake bunkers, one crew out the mow greens. Um, so that's probably one of the, the biggest things is, is how they motivate their staff um, because it, it really comes down to is, is, it's labor intensive. Uh, as far as innovative things, um, we're starting to see some interesting things, like I mentioned the autonomous mowers, and, and that, that's going to be the future, I think, as, as far as some, some of the peripheral aerials go. Um, but really, bunker raking, um, we're seeing a pretty big uh, change in less raking and more firming of bunkers is probably um, something that saves a lot of labor. And also, it's a challenge to communicate that to golfers because the bunker may not look the same as it did when it was raked you know, entirely two or three years ago. Um, but that's probably one that we call it the Australian method. It came out of Australia uh, where you that's, smooth the faces. Yeah, where it's like yeah. you, you notice it because the bottoms are just raked, right? Exactly. Now, I've had golfers tell me, say, our bunkers are unkept. And I'll say, well, you know, when I was here last year, we discussed going through this method to try to firm the edges and maybe rake the bunkers less. And the less you touch the faces, the firmer that sand may play and the ball should release to the bottom. So that's one that's kind of been well adopted by a, a lot of golf courses, in a lot of different regions. It's actually been pretty innovative and, and saved some 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 uh, time. And I have to give that question some more thought, to be honest with you. That's, that's a tough one. Um, I'm sure there's some examples out there. With with regards to, you know, getting a club to implement something, is it is cost always the biggest motivator or, or what are what are some other motivators to, you know, kind of convincing a club to undergo a change like like, say, that bunker change? Yeah, but the biggest one is uh, access. How's that going to impact me? That's a big question I get. <laughs> right. Like, um, like so, OK, so with every, every golfer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your greens aren't draining well. You, you know, your superintendent can't mow the greens for two days after you get two inches of rain. So your greens aren't draining. I would advise putting drainage in there. So the, 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 how much is that going to cost question? And how long is the green going to be closed for the two biggest ones you'll get, right? So access and then cost, right? Um, and then you say, you know, you, you draw out a piece of paper, you say, this is how to install the drainage and it takes them about a day, day and a half, the green will be playable. And then what's that cost, right? So um, just as, as one example, but um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think a lot of clubs are really realizing that it's all about the access. And I, I have a funny joke. I, I, I question people from time to time. I say, hey, have you ever redone your kitchen? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, when you ever did your kitchen, did you eat dinner in there every night? Or maybe you ate out a lot or you put a <laughs> microwave in the living room, right? And I'm like, well, this, this golf hole is like your kitchen. You're going to enjoy this with your friends and your family perpetually once it's done, right? We're going to get this work done. Just give us the space. And then, you know, you can cook whatever you want to and have, you know, host your parties in here, right? And it's a golf hole, right? So um, I, sometimes I'll, depending on who I'm with, I'll give a, a dollar number and they're like what they spent on the kitchen, you know, as, as a comparison to the, the, the infrastructure improvements they're going to do at the golf course. But it goes hand in hand, right? Uh, and I, I've suggested, you know, but, uh, reciprocity or neighboring clubs and people will say, well, you know, that's good or bad, depending on who they are. But um, the biggest thing I think is for any big project would be, and the architects will probably tell you this too. Uh, we had a funny scenario this past year where a club was going to renovate their fairways. So they were going to spray a non-selective herbicide on the fairways and kill them and then reseed them. Well, they're going to do nine holes this year and nine holes next year from a disruption standpoint. And come to find out there, the club was going to host a huge wedding, a big profitable wedding, like the week after the fairways were going to be dead. <laughs> and I got a phone call about, you know, Steve, what do you suggest? And so the club ended up actually painting the fair, the dead fairways green <laughs> so that from the back terrace of the club, people taking pictures of the wedding, there was no dead grass in there, right? 
And so there's a club that has definitely thought through the process of giving the members the best golf course agronomically they can. They're updating the grass, going to a new bank grass in this scenario. But then there was still the access issue from a wedding, right? So a pretty eye-opening when you, you deal with that, um, that scenario. And the paint looked great from the back terrace. You would never know that the club, they went out and they, they did it and was an issue. The amazing thing about photos at a golf course. So like I, I've noticed this having photographed like a lot of golf courses and growing is that yep. when you get far away from grass, it looks really good at like an early stage. But when you're up close, that's when you notice it's like patchy or thin. But like when especially like if you take the drone and the drones up, you know, 150 feet, you're like, oh, that looks playable, you know, and it could be very thin. Like, you know, and you're walking on it. It's it's fascinating. So the paint strategy, there's there. I feel like there are a lot of stories about whether it's influential or high priced, influential members, kids, weddings or high price weddings, like the like rush jobs on different things needing to be accomplished in order to, yeah. to get it done. You know, that analogy that you made is so good because it's like, you know, it, it applies like the house is always a great way to I feel like to relate things to people. Like if you were getting your bed- bedroom renovated, you wouldn't be staying in your bedroom. You'd like pick another room of your house. And it's like, you know, if you stayed in the bedroom, all you're going to do is make the 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 bedroom getting back open a longer process, right? Totally. Yeah. If you're in the way, you can't get the project done. And that's a talking point that I use at many clubs, you know, uh, or courses even is, you know, are you guys going to, when are you closing? And they'll say, well, we're going to try to phase closure. If we're going to work on one, two, we're going to play, you know, three through 18. I say, so you're going to ask your superintendent to maintain 16 holes and then also oversee this, this huge construction project. So they're, they're basically in a construction mode as well as a maintenance mode. And I say it's a big challenge and they'll, they'll say, what do you suggest? And like realize, you know, if you can focus on just the big project, it's a big, big, big thing to talk, talk about. So yeah, uh, the access is a big, and a lot of clubs face that. That's probably the, the, the cost is not always the main issue. I mean, it's a big issue, but a lot of times I'm finding it's more that if people just want access to their, their course. And I, I totally understand their concerns. So, with You talked about autonomous mowers a little bit and that being a big thing in the future. I'm curious. Um, I think like I, I've heard a lot about grasses um, and the innovation there. What would have been, are, do you see that from your side where we're seeing new grasses come on the market that are, you know, much more sustainable or provide, you know, huge benefits to uh, the professionals maintaining them where they can maybe allocate resources differently or use less, uh, use less, you know, applicants. What, what's going on in the actual grass uh, evolution? There's there's a lot going on. I want to preface this by saying that in every different region, there are pros and cons to grasses, right? Where I happen to do most of my work, you know, basically from Richmond through Boston or Richmond through Philadelphia in particular, that transition zone, we don't have an ideal grass species, right? You'll see golf courses in the same 30 minutes growing ryegrass. You'll see bent grass. You'll see some Georgia grass fairways. You'll see some Bermuda grass fairways all in that same region, right? If there was a perfect grass out there, every golf course would be growing it, right, in that region. We just don't see that, right, because of that. So there are various climates, like maybe you're in out west where Bermuda grass is definitely, you know, the go-to. But even within the Bermuda grasses, we're seeing more heat tolerant ones we're seeing some drought tolerant ones right and where you can actually you know look at these grasses and try to water them a little less now they, they still gonna need water you can't not just water we know that there's a, there um, isn't but, a grass that doesn't need water yet 
that has not been. yet. <laughs> so, um, but in, in the Bermuda grasses, yeah, we see a lot of that. Now, in the Zoysia grasses, we're seeing better texture. Uh, we're seeing more green color retention, say, into the fall and earlier into the spring, which is a, a big knock on a, a lot of these warm season grasses because in most of the country at some point they will go dormant once they get hit by frost. They'll go straw color. Uh, which I don't mind that at all. I mean, the zoysias the we have today are, are definitely not like the older zoysias. They actually have more texture. The ball will set a little bit better. And the biggest things with the bent grasses that we're seeing, so these would be the, the newer bent grasses the past, you know, even five to 10 years, is they have better disease tolerance and they have some some heat tolerance as well as good texture. So from a golfer, you know, looked out on a fairway or a tee or even a putting green, the, the texture will be finer. Uh, the ball roll should be more consistent when they're when they're young, uh, and then within the bent grasses, we're seeing some ones that are more competitive with Poe annual, which love it or hate it, Poe is going to be there in many scenarios. I don't want to get into the, the Poe bent grass debate today because it probably take up a whole pod, but um, realize that many of these newer bent grasses, year two, three, and four, they're very competitive. And they tend to, to be so dense uh, they prevent Poe annual from uh, filling in. So there's a lot of good attributes to them. Is that what happens with uh, invasion? Is it just the competition between, you know, like effectively like Darwin, you know, the competition between species and, and the more dominant species, you know, edges the other one out? Is that what happens when you get contamination? That's a big part of it, Andy. So there's a lot of reasons why Poenua is extremely competitive. But the biggest one is, is as a huge seed bank, most golf courses are more than 30 years old, especially the Northeast. If you kill an area with a herbicide and don't do anything to it and let it sit fallow for a year, it'll turn to 100% poenua. So there's tons of seed in the soil and then, you know, traffic will thin the bent grass out and then poa flowers and produces more seed. It's very competitive, but you're exactly right. What, what, ha what happens in a golf course landscape, this is very difficult for many golfers to think about, but basically it, it's evolution happening in front of us, Right. And the mower, if you think about a mower, is actually stopping evolution, right? If evolution by ecology terms was really happening, you would not be mowing it and it would turn into a forest over time, right? So by cutting things as low as we do, we're basically preventing that from occurring. So yeah, it's kind of the, the science behind it. There's other reasons why, you know, uh, Poenua can be very competitive in golf course landscapes. It's very, it's very diverse. Um, down south, there's a lot of resistance issues with Poa where they just don't have any herbicides that kill it. Um, and that's once again, it's, you know, the, the ecology of it. I guess like that's something, you know, that I, you know, you golf course, you, you renovate it, you open it up and it's in this state that everybody wants it to be right. And from that moment, you're kind of fighting nature and evolution. What's the ba right balance of like worrying about, you know, a, you know, how something's changing or weathering or whatever versus you know kind of like knowing like addressing an evolution right like you know i imagine that's got to be a hard thing for superintendents yeah it is and, and that's why we're seeing i mean we're seeing a lot of clubs in the northeast and i'll name a few but uh, like Wingfoot, for example where they uh bought the straw where they picked the poe of bent grass sawed up and put it back down uh, those were instances where the, the members, in my opinion, were not ha unhappy with the surface. They wanted to change more of the architecture, right? So, so, so for those uh, those instances, they took the grass out of the greens, planted it, and then brought it back in, right? Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. So they, they I, I call it turf recycling. So you're basically going to take the turf off the top, create 
the changes architecturally with the soil and add, you know, USGA specification ingredients and then put it back down. So that, that's a scenario where they're, they're basically embracing the previous hundred years of ecology, right? So they, they know that, that grass has been adapted to grow in that environment. So we're, we're seeing both ends of the spectrum here where some golf courses are starting fresh with all new grasses, which is going to be more uniform, more defined. Now, maybe that grass was bred to be growing in full sun and you have some shade issues, right? And that first year or two could be tough. We've all seen that with grasses that are immature, especially in the shade. You take a lot of time to mature and eventually maybe you cut more trees down, right? Uh, whereas some of the courses have just embraced the grasses that they have and they've recycled them. So now this, this is, once again, not a uniform suggestion, right? There's very few times that you would recycle the same grass. Uh, generally, that's when people are pretty happy with the grass, but they just want to change the architecture out. So, uh, but yeah, the other big challenge is too, like um, grasses take time to mature, right? So greens will typically mature like two and a half to three years after they're planted for bent grass greens. Now, Bermuda can be closer to a year for sure, just in, in the Southeast. But to think about, you know, these grasses, they take time to acclimate in their environment. And then it takes the superintendent and their staff some time to figure out how best to mow them, roll them, spray them, right? Like, you know, most of the major championships that you see on TV, they aren't playing that U.S. Open of June after they just re rebuilt the whole entire golf course the, the previous fall. It's usually two or three or four years. This year, Oak Hill was on its fourth year when it was open for, for the PGA Championship, for example. So there's a big talking point there I use many times is that these grasses, they're perennials, right? They survive year after year. And this takes some time, right? So uh, there's a lot of expectations there. But generally speaking, the architecture and the grassy lines are all where they need to be. It's just getting that grass to mature. You know, I, d I never thought about like how things become irregular um, at a golf course. I'm I'm per per personally, and this is I think a very much a taste thing. I'm very much a fan of like when you go to an old course having a hodgepodge of grasses, right? Like it it just makes it feel a little bit older when than the uniform approach that's become quite popular in renovation. But one of the things you said, like. You, you know, you got a shade area where the where this grass isn't growing well. And it's like, oh, then the superintendent throws down some fine fescue that grows well in the shade. Right. And that's how the process of getting a hodgepodge of grasses starts. Right. Because it all yeah. started from one, you know, one seed. Right. Uh, even 100 years ago. And they just eventually evolve. Right. Someone tracks some poa on their shoe onto the green and you start to get that process. Right. Yeah, so th that's an interesting one way to think about it. I know that you do a lot of consulting with clubs on how to prep for tournaments. Yeah. How do you, what is like the ideal approach for, you know, getting your golf course to peak? Uh, I, I, I always like in my head, I've imagined this as like a, a swimmer getting ready for a race, like where you hear about their like tapering protocol. What's it yep. for the golf course? Like if you were, if you're laying out a golf course to get it ready for a, let's just say a state am which is more realistic for a lot of golf courses sure. than, a, than a u.s open but like what what are you doing um and what does that look like to get a golf course to peak right so Andy, look at this at every level so you know a local you know club could be hosting their their you know june member guest or whatever that is or like a local public golf course could uh, be hosting the philadelphia publics right yeah, when's that biggest county, event of the year right, right? whatever it is so uh, I look at every major aspect, like you said, swimmer, right? So like, I like a swimmer, like tapering their diet, packing their bag, know it, where everything is in their bag, where their earbuds are, they're going to listen to music while they wait, right? So uh, 
I'm working with a club right now where we're actually fine-tuning their fescue mowing programs to have the fescue peak next September, right? So we're actually going to do some spring cutting. Uh, so whenever you're looking at a big that's event- That's different because a fescue would normally peak like what, June? Yeah, middle of June usually. So we're actually going to do an extra spring cutting to try to keep it a little thinner going into late summer, for example. But whenever you have a, 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 a event like this, it's important for the, the whole entire committee or people involved to really be focused on that event. Uh, really, you may switch up your aerification. People will ask you, say, um, greens are going to peak in June. When were they last aerified? And I was like, well, they probably weren't aerified this calendar year, right? So if you want to peak for that event, let's talk about peaking for that event. Maybe we aerify in September, October, the previous year. And then will you have the ability to go back in after the event and airfy? Or are you going to be hosting an event right next yeah. day? Right? Remember, members so, probably want to play it right after, you know, they want a couple of weeks exactly. right after that. Exactly. So those are all just big. It really comes down to planning your plan. That goes from greens, tees, fairways, rough to everything from staffing. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that have been involved with major tournaments and I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, what's the key to this, this going off without a hitch? And they say, good planning. So the same thing I do with talking to golf courses about that, uh, would be just a plan. Um, you know, if you want the fescues to be a little, maybe more playable, maybe you, you spray them extra time, you mow them extra time in the spring, for example. And, uh, fescue areas are a, a big contentious point at a lot of places for tournament play because they speed up or, you know, can slow up play. Uh, how you play them, right, as you know. So uh, generally, it's not the greens, tees, and fairways. It's, it's, it's peripheral areas that come more into, into these types of discussions. Um, and uh, what else? So yeah, and then also, you know, if they have some problematic greens, tees, or fairways, why are they problematic? Let's try to address these issues before the big event. Yeah. Um, the the out-of-play areas is an interesting one because what makes a lot of people's favorite out-of-play areas where you can find a ball quickly, where it's, you know, you can play out of, I can see the flip side of people in tournament golf wanting to inflict pain and, and penalty in those out of play areas. It's a bit of a right. kind of push and pull to what people are want for day-to-day -day play versus what they want for tournament play. Yep. It's, yep. Um, all right, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, we could talk for hours here, but um, how do, how do people find you? Uh, the easiest way to get me would be on my website, which is turfgrassdiseasesolutions.com. Uh, I could do a simple Google search, uh, probably get me as well, Steve McDonald Turf. Uh, but the website's probably the easiest way to do that. And I'm um, happy to, to are take you, any. Are you on questions. social media? I am not very active, though, Andy. Okay. So I, it might take me a week or two to get back to people <laughs> on, on a platform on social media. So um, not very active there. All right, Steve. Uh, thank you so much and have a great holidays. Uh, look forward to chatting with you more and seeing you up in the Northeast sometime this year. Andy, thank you for having me on. It was great. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. And big thanks to Matt Rusis for editing and producing this podcast and for all of his work this year. Hey, uh, a great way to ring in the new year is to join our membership, Club TFE. If you're into golf and if you're into golf courses, this is it. This is the spot. You're going to find a couple pieces of uh, writing every week from us on, uh, you know, one will be golf course profiles. The last one I did was Old Barnwell. I think I'm going to have Beverly done for next week. So jump in there. Join at thefriedag.com slash membership. It's $120 for the year, and that money really goes to support 
all the things that we're trying to create and uh, and do in 2024. So big thanks to all the members that have supported us. And uh, if, you, if you're not a member, take a look, consider it. And uh, we'd love to have you uh, join Club TFE. Thanks. And we'll be back in 2024 with new podcasts, another year of podcasting. Thank you to everybody.